Drama on One. Sundays at 8pm. rte.ie forward slash drama on one. Drama on one. This is RTE Radio 1. Now we continue our season of Summer Sundays with the RTE players' dramatisation of stories from James Joyce's Dubliners. Tonight we broadcast two more classic stories, Clay and Ivy Day in the Committee Room. Mariah is looking forward to her evening out with the Donnellys in Drumcondra. Matron has given permission to leave Donnybrook's Dublin by Lamplight laundry as soon as the women's tea is over. Mariah is all prepared and ready for her evening out. This is Clay by James Joyce. The matron had given her leave to go out as soon as the women's tea was over and Mariah looked forward to her evening out. The kitchen was spick and span. The cook said you could see yourself in the big copper boilers. The fire was nice and bright and on one of the side tables were four very big barm bracks. These barm bracks seemed uncut but if you went closer you would see that they had been cut into long, thick, even slices and were ready to be handed round at tea. Mariah had cut them herself. Mariah was a very, very small person indeed, but she had a very long nose and a very long chin. She talked a little through her nose, always soothingly. Yes, my dear. And? No, my dear. She was always sent for when the women quarrelled over their tubs and always succeeded in making peace. One day the matron had said to her, Mariah, you are a veritable peacemaker. And the sub-matron and two of the bored ladies had heard the compliment. And Ginger Mooney was always saying what she wouldn't do to the dummy who had charge of the irons if it wasn't for Mariah. Everyone was so fond of Mariah. The women would have their tea at six o'clock and she would be able to get away before seven. From Ballsbridge to the Pillar, twenty minutes. From the Pillar to Drumcondra, twenty minutes. And twenty minutes to buy the things. She would be there before eight. She took out her purse with the silver clasps and read again the words, A present from Belfast. She was very fond of that purse because Joe had brought it to her five years before when he and Alfie had gone to Belfast on a Whit Monday trip. In the purse were two half-crowns and some coppers. She would have five shillings clear after paying the tram fare. What a nice evening they would have. Oh, all the children singing. Only she hoped that Joe wouldn't come in drunk. He was so different when he took any drink. Often he had wanted her to go and live with them, but she would have felt herself in the way, though Joe's wife was ever so nice with her, and she had become accustomed to the life of the laundry. Joe was a good fellow. She had nursed him and Alfie too, and Joe used to often say, Mama is Mama, but Mariah is my proper mother. After the break-up at home, the boys had got her that position in the Dublin-by-Lamplight laundry, and she liked it. She used to have such a bad opinion of Protestants, but now she thought they were very nice people, a little quiet and serious, but still very nice people to live with. Then she had her plants in the conservatory, and she liked looking after them. She had lovely ferns and wax plants, and whenever anyone came to visit her, She always gave the visitor one or two slips from her conservatory. There was one thing she didn't like, and that was the tracts on the walls. 
But the matron was such a nice person to deal with, so genteel. When the cook told her everything was ready, she went into the women's room and began to pull the big bell. In a few minutes, the women began to come in by twos and threes, wiping their steaming hands in their petticoats and pulling down the sleeves of their blouses over their red, steaming arms. They settled down before their huge mugs, which the cook and the dummy filled up with hot tea, already mixed with milk and sugar in huge tin cans. Maria superintended the distribution of the balm brack and saw that every woman got her four slices. There was a great deal of laughing and joking during the meal. Lizzie Fleming said Maria was sure to get the ring, and though Fleming had said that for so many Halloweaves, Maria had to laugh and say she didn't want any ring or man either. And when she laughed, her grey-green eyes sparkled with disappointed shyness, and the tip of her nose nearly met the tip of her chin. Then Ginger Mooney lifted up her mug of tea and proposed Maria's health, while all the other women clattered with their mugs on the table, and said she was sorry she hadn't a sup of porter to drink it in. And Maria laughed again till the tip of her nose nearly met the tip of her chin, and till her minute body nearly shook itself asunder, because she knew that Mooney meant well, though, of course, she had the notions of a common woman. But wasn't Maria glad when the women had finished their tea, and the cook and the dummy had begun to clear away the tea things? She went into her little bedroom, and remembering that the next morning was a mass morning, changed the hand of the alarm from seven to six. Then she took off her working skirt and her house boots, and laid her best skirt out on the bed, and her tiny dress boots beside the foot of the bed. She changed her blouse, too, and as she stood before the mirror, she thought of how she used to dress for mass on Sunday morning when she was a young girl and she looked with quaint affection at the diminutive body which she had so often adorned. In spite of its years, she found it a nice, tidy little body. When she got outside, the streets were shining with rain, and she was glad of her old brown rain cloak. The tram was full, and she had to sit on the little stool at the end of the car, facing all the people, with her toes barely touching the floor. She arranged in her mind all she was going to do and thought how much better it was to be independent and to have your own money in your pocket. She hoped they would have a nice evening. She was sure they would, but she could not help thinking what a pity it was Alfie and Joe were not speaking. They were always falling out now, but when they were boys together they used to be the best of friends. But such was life. She got out of her tram at the pillar and ferreted her way quickly among the crowds. She went in Downs's cake shop, but the shop was so full of people that it was a long time before she could get herself attended to. She bought a dozen of mixed penny cakes, and at last came out of the shop laden with a big bag. Then she thought, what else would she buy? She wanted to buy something really nice. They would be sure to have plenty of apples and nuts, it was hard to know what to buy, and all she could think of was cake. She decided to buy some plum cake, but Downs's plum cake had not enough almond icing on top of it, so she went over to a shop in Henry Street. Here she was a long time in suiting herself, and the stylish young lady behind the counter, who was evidently a little annoyed by her, asked her was it wedding cake she wanted to buy. That made Maria blush and smile at the young lady, but the young lady took it all very seriously 
and finally cut a thick slice of plum cake, parceled it up and said, Two and four, please. She thought she would have to stand in the Drumcondra tram because none of the young men seemed to notice her, but an elderly gentleman made room for her. He was a stout gentleman and he wore a brown hard hat. He had a square red face and a greyish moustache. Maria thought he was a colonel-looking gentleman, and she reflected how much more polite he was than the young men who simply stared straight before them. The gentleman began to chat with her about Halloween and the rainy weather. He supposed the bag was full of good things for the little ones, and said it was only right that the youngsters should enjoy themselves while they were young. Maria agreed with him, and favoured him with demure nods and ahems. <clears throat> He was very nice with her, and when she was getting out of the canal bridge, she thanked him and bowed, and he bowed to her and raised his hat and smiled agreeably. And while she was going up along the terrace, bending her tiny head under the rain, she thought how easy it was to know a gentleman, even when he has a drop taken. Everybody said, <laughs> When she came to Joe's house, Joe was there, having come home from business, and all the children had their Sunday dresses on. There were two big girls in from next door, and games were going on. Mariah gave the bag of cakes to the eldest boy, Alfie, to divide, and Mrs Donnelly said it was too good of her to bring such a big bag of cakes, and made all the children say, But Mariah said she had brought something special for Papa and Mama, something they would be sure to like and she began to look for her plum cake. She tried in Downs's bag, and then in the pockets of her rain cloak, and then on the hall stand, but nowhere could she find it. Then she asked all the children had any of them eaten it, by mistake, of course, but the children all said no, and looked as if they did not like to eat cakes if they were to be accused of stealing. Everybody had a solution for the mystery, and Mrs. Donnelly said it was plain that Maria had left it behind her in the tram. Maria, remembering how confused the gentleman with the greyish moustache had made her, coloured with shame and vexation and disappointment. At the thought of the failure of her little surprise and of the two and fourpence she had thrown away for nothing, she nearly cried outright. But Joe said it didn't matter and made her sit down by the fire. He was very nice with her. He told her all that went on in his office, repeating for her a smart answer which he had made to the manager. Maria did not understand why Joe laughed so much over the answer he had made, but she said that the manager must have been a very overbearing person to deal with. Joe said he wasn't so bad when you knew how to take him, that he was a decent sort so long as you didn't rob him the wrong way. Mrs Donnelly played the piano for the children, and they danced and sang. Then the two next-door girls handed round the nuts. Nobody could find the nutcrackers, and Joe was nearly getting cross over it and asked how did they expect Maria to crack nuts without a nutcracker. But Maria said she didn't like nuts and that they weren't to bother about her. Then Joe asked would she take a bottle of stout, and Mrs Donnelly said there was port wine too in the house if she would prefer that. Maria said she would rather they didn't ask her to take anything but Joe insisted. So Maria let him have his way, and they sat by the fire, talking over old times, and Maria thought she would put in a good word for Alfie. But Joe cried that God might strike him stone dead if ever he spoke a word to his brother again.
and Maria said she was sorry she had mentioned the matter. Mrs. Donnelly told her husband it was a great shame for him to speak that way of his own flesh and blood. But Joe said that Alfie was no brother of his, and there was nearly being a row on the head of it. But Joe said he would not lose his temper on account of the night it was, and asked his wife to open some more stout. The two next-door girls had arranged some Hallow-Eve games, and soon everything was merry again. Maria was delighted to see the children so merry, and Joe and his wife in such good spirits. The next-door girls put some saucers on the table, and then led the children up to the table blindfold. One got the prayer book, and the other three got the water. And when one of the next-door girls got the ring, Mrs. Donnelly shook her finger at the blushing girl, as much as to say, Oh, I know all about it. They insisted then on blindfolding Maria and leading her up to the table to see what she would get. And while they were putting on the bandage, Maria laughed and laughed again till the tip of her nose nearly met the tip of her chin. They led her up to the table amid laughing and joking, and she put her hand out in the air as she was told to do. She moved her hand about here and there in the air and descended on one of the saucers. She felt a soft, wet substance with her fingers and was surprised that nobody spoke or took off her bandage. There was a pause for a few seconds and then a great deal of scuffling and whispering. Somebody said something about the garden and at last Mrs Donnelly said something very cross to one of the next-door girls and told her to throw it out at once. That was no play. Maria understood that it was wrong that time, and so she had to do it over again. And this time she got the prayer book. After that, Mrs Donnelly played Miss MacLeod's reel for the children, and Joe made Maria take a glass of wine. Soon they were all quite merry again, and Mrs. Donnelly said Maria would enter a convent before the year was out because she had got the prayer book. Maria had never seen Joe so nice to her as he was that night, so full of pleasant talk and reminiscences. She said they were all very good to her. At last the children grew tired and sleepy, and Joe asked Maria would she not sing some little song before she went, one of the old songs. Mrs. Donnelly said... Please, Maria. And so Maria had to get up and stand beside the piano. Mrs. Donnelly bade the children be quiet and listen to Maria's song. Then she played the prelude and said, Now, Maria. And Maria, blushing very much, began to sing in a tiny, quavering voice. She sang, I dreamt that I dwelt, and when she came to the second verse, she sang again. I dreamt that I dwelt, and 
but no one tried to show her her mistake. And when she had ended her song, Joe was very much moved. He said that there was no time like the long ago, and no music for him like poor old Balf, whatever other people might say. And his eyes filled up so much with tears that he could not find what he was looking for, and in the end he had to ask his wife to tell him where the corkscrew was. We've been listening to Clay by James Joyce. Mariah was Barbara McCaughey and Colette Proctor was Matron. Joe was Alan Brady and Daphne Carroll played Mrs Donnelly. Clay by James Joyce was narrated by Connor Farrington and the producer was William Stiles. Drama on One. Sundays at 8pm. rta.ie forward slash drama on one. Drama on One. As Mr. Henshee and Mr. O'Connor wait for the arrival of a little matter from the Black Eagle, talk invariably turns to politics and the municipal election prospects of Mr. Richard J. Tierney, PLG. Mr. Hines joins them and shares his opinion of Tricky Dicky Tierney and his kowtowing to Eddie Rex, the newly crowned King of England. Such shoninism drives him to poetry to satirise and shun those who befouled the exalted name of Parnell, the uncrowned King of Ireland. This is Ivy Day in the Committee Room by James Joyce. Old Jack, Rick the cinders together with a piece of cardboard and spread them judiciously over the whitening dome of coals. When the dome was thinly covered, his face lapsed into darkness, but as he set himself to fan the fire again, his crouching shadow ascended the opposite wall and his face slowly re-emerged into light. It was an old man's face, very bony and hairy. The moist blue eyes blinked at the fire and the moist mouth fell open at times, munching once or twice mechanically when it closed. When the cinders had caught, he laid the piece of cardboard against the wall, sighed and said, Uh, That's better now, Mr O'Connor. Mr O'Connor, a grey-haired young man whose face was disfigured by many blotches and pimples, had just brought the tobacco for a cigarette into a shapely cylinder, but when spoken to, he undid his handiwork meditatively. Then he began to roll the tobacco again meditatively, and after a moment's thought, decided to lick the paper. Mm. Did Mr Tierney say when he'd be back? He asked in a husky falsetto. He didn't say. Mr O'Connor put his cigarette into his mouth and began to search his pockets. Mm. He took out a pack of thin pasteboard cards. I'll get you a map, said the old man. Uh, Never mind, this'll do, said Mr O'Connor. He selected one of the cards and read what was printed on it. Municipal elections, Royal Exchange Ward, Mr Richard J. Tierney, PLG, respectfully solicits the favour of your vote and influence at the coming election in the Royal Exchange Ward. Mr O'Connor had been engaged by Mr Tierney's agent to canvas one part of the ward, but as the weather was inclement and his boots let in the wet, He spent a great part of the day sitting by the fire in the committee room in Wicklow Street with Jack, the old caretaker. 
They had been sitting thus since the short day had grown dark. It was the 6th of October, dismal and cold out of doors. Mr O'Connor tore a strip off the card and, lighting it, lit his cigarette. As he did so, the flame lit up a leaf of dark, glossy ivy in the lapel of his coat. The old man watched him attentively and then, taking up the piece of cardboard again, began to fan the fire slowly while his companion smoked. Ah, yes, he said, continuing. It's hard to know what way to bring up children. Now, who'd think he'd turn out like that? I sent him to the Christian brothers, and I'd done what I could for him. And there he goes, boozing and boozing. I tried to make him some way decent. He replaced the cardboard wearily. Only I'm an old man now, I change his tune for him. I take the stick to his back and beat him where I could stand over him, as I've done many a time before. The mother, you know, she cocks him up with this and that. That's what ruins children. To be sure it is. And little thanks you get for it, only impotence. He takes the upper hand of me whenever he sees I've a sup taken. What's the word will come until when sons speak that way to their father? At what age is he? Nineteen. Why don't you put him to something? Sure, am I never done at the drunken bowsy ever since he left school. I won't keep you, I says. You must get a job for yourself. But sure it's worse whenever he gets a job, he drinks us all. Mr O'Connor shook his head in sympathy, and the old man fell silent, gazing into the fire. Someone opened the door of the room and called out, Hello, is this a Freemasons meeting? Who's that? What are you doing in the dark? Asked a voice. Is that you, Hines? Asked Mr O'Connor. Yeah, what are you doing in the dark? Said Mr Hines, advancing into the light of the fire. He was a tall, slender young man with a light brown moustache. Imminent little drops of rain hung at the brim of his hat and the collar of his jacket coat was turned up. Well, Matt, he said to Mr O'Connor. How goes it? Mr O'Connor shook his head. The old man left the hearth and, after stumbling about the room, returned with two candlesticks, which he thrust one after the other into the fire and carried to the table. A denuded room came into view and the fire lost all its cheerful colour. The walls of the room were bare, except for a copy of an election address. In the middle of the room was a small table on which papers were heaped. Mr Hines leaned against the mantelpiece and asked, Has he paid you yet? Not yet. I hope to God he'll not leave us in the lurch tonight. <laughs> Mr Hines laughed. Ah, <laughs> oh, he'll pay you, never fear. I hope he'll look smart about it if he means business. What do you think, Jack? said Mr Hines satirically to the old man. The old man returned to his seat by the fire, saying, It isn't but he has it anyway. Not like the other tinker. What other tinker? Colgan, said the old man scornfully. Is it because Colgan's a working man you say that? What's the difference between a good honest bricklayer and a publican, eh? Hasn't the working man as good a right to be in the corporation as anyone else? Aye, and a better right than those shoneens that are always hat in hand before any fellow with a handle to his name. It's not so, Matt, said Mr Hines, addressing Mr O'Connor. I think you're right. One man is a plain, honest man with no hunker sliding about him. He goes in to represent the labour classes. This fellow you're working for only wants to get some job or other. Of course, the working classes should be represented. 
the working man gets all kicks and no halfpence. But its labour produces everything. The working man is not looking for fat jobs for his sons and nephews and cousins. The working man is not going to drag the honour of Dublin in the mud to please a German monarch. How is that? Don't you know they want to present an address of welcome to Edward Rex if he comes here next year? What do we want kowtowing to a foreign king? Our man won't vote for the address, said Mr O'Connor. He goes in on the nationalist ticket. Won't he? Wait till you see whether he will or not. I know him. He's a tricky dicky tanny. Oh, be God, perhaps you're right, Joe. Anyway, I wish he'd turn up at the Spandulics. The three men fell silent. The old man began to rake more cinders together. Mr Hines took off his hat, shook it, and then turned down the collar of his coat, displaying, as he did so, an ivy leaf in the lapel. If this man was alive, he said, pointing to the leaf, we'd have no talk of an address of welcome. That's true. Must have God be with them times. There was some life in it then. The room was silent again. Then a bustling little man with a snuffling nose and very cold ears pushed in the door. He walked over quickly to the fire, rubbing his hands as if he intended to produce a spark from them. No money, boys, he said. Sit down here, Mr Henchy, said the old man, offering him his chair. Ah, don't stall, Jack, don't stall, said Mr Henchy. He nodded curtly to Mr Hines and sat down on the chair which the old man vacated. Did you serve Angel Street? He asked Mr O'Connor. Yes, said Mr O'Connor, beginning to search his pockets for memoranda. Did you call on Groyams? I did. Well, how does he stand? He wouldn't promise. He said, I won't tell anyone what way I'm going to vote, but I think he'll be all right. Why so? He asked me who the nominators were, and I told him. I mentioned Father Burke's name. I think it'll be all right. Mr Henshey began to snuffle and to rub his hands over the fire at a terrific speed. Then he said... For the love of God, Jack, bring us a bit of coal. There must be some left. The old man went out of the room. It's no go, said Mr Henshey, shaking his head. I asked the little shoe boy, but he said, Oh, now, Mr Henshey, when I see the work going on properly, I won't forget you, you may be sure. Mean little tinker. Oh, how could he be anything else? What did I tell you, Matt? Said Mr Hines. Tricky, dicky, tierney. Oh, he's as tricky as they make him. He hasn't got those little pig's eyes for nothing. Blast his soul. Couldn't he pay up like a man instead of, Oh, now, Mr Henchy, I must speak to Mr Fanning. I've spent a lot of money. Mean little shoe boy of hell. I suppose he forgets the time his little old father kept the hand-me-down shop in Mary's Lane. But is that a fact? Asked Mr O'Connor. God, yes. Did you never hear that? And the men used to go in on Sunday morning before the houses were open to buy a waistcoat or a trousers more, yeah. But Tricky Dicky's little old father always had a tricky little black bottle up in a corner. Do you mind now? That's that. That's where he first saw the light. The old man returned with a few lumps of coal, which he placed here and there on the fire. Ah, that's a nice help you do. How does he expect us to work for him if he won't stump up? I can't help it. I expect to find the bailiffs in the hall when I go home. <laughs> Mr Hines laughed 
and shoving himself away from the mantelpiece with the aid of his shoulders, made ready to leave. It'll be all right when King Eddie comes. Oh, well, boys, I'm off for the present. See you later. Bye, boy. He went out of the room slowly. Neither Mr Henshey nor the old man said anything, but just as the door was closing, Mr O'Connor, who had been staring moodily into the fire, called out suddenly, A boy, Joe. Mr Henshey waited a few moments and then nodded in the direction of the door. Tell me, he said across the fire, what brings our friend in here? What does he want? Oh, poor Joe, said Mr O'Connor, throwing the end of his cigarette into the fire. He's hard up like the rest of us. Mr Henshey snuffled vigorously and spat so copiously that he nearly put out the fire, which uttered a hissing protest. To tell you my private and candid opinion, I think he's a man from the other camp. He's a spy of Colgan's, if you ask me. Just go round and try and find out how they're getting on. They won't suspect you, be a twig. Ah, poor Jaw was a decent skin. His father was a decent, respectable man, Mr Henshey admitted. Poor old Larry Hines. Many a good sudden he did in his day. But I'm greatly afraid our friend is not 19, Carrot. Damn it, I can understand a fella being hard up, but what I can't understand is a fella sponging. Couldn't he have some spark of manhood about him? He doesn't get a warm welcome from me when he comes, said the old man. Let him work for his own side, not come spying around here. I don't know, said Mr O'Connor dubiously, as he took out cigarette papers and tobacco. <sighs> I think Joe Hines is a straight man. He's a clever chap too, with the pen. Do you remember that thing he wrote? Some of these hillsiders and fenians are a bit too clever if you ask me. Do you know what my private and candid opinion is about some of those little jokers? I believe half of them are in the pay of the castle. There's no knowing, said the old man. Oh, but I know it for a fact. They're castle hacks. I don't say Hines. No, damn it, I think he's a stroke above that. But there's a certain little nobleman with a cock eye. You know the patriot I'm alluding to. Mr O'Connor nodded. There's a lineal descendant of Major Saw for you, if you like. Oh, the heart's blood of a patriot. That's a fella now that'd sell his country for fourpence, aye, and go down on his bended knees and thank the almighty Christ he had a country to sell. There was a knock at the door. Come in, said Mr Henshey. A person resembling a poor clergyman or a poor actor appeared in the doorway. His black clothes were tightly buttoned on his short body and it was impossible to say whether he wore a clergyman's collar or a layman's because the collar of his shabby frock coat, the uncovered buttons of which reflected the candlelight, was turned up about his neck. He wore a round hat of hard black felt. His face, shining with raindrops, had the appearance of damp yellow cheese save where two rosy spots indicated the cheekbones. He opened his very long mouth suddenly to express disappointment and at the same time opened wide his very bright blue eyes to express pleasure and surprise. Oh, Father Keown, said Mr Henshey, jumping up from his chair. Is that you? Come in. Oh, no, 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 said Father Keown quickly, pursing his lips as if he were addressing a child. Won't you come in and sit down? No, 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 said Father Keown, speaking in a discreet, indulgent, velvety voice. Don't let me disturb you now. I'm just looking for Mr Fanning. He's round at the Black Eagle, said Mr Henshey. But won't you come in and sit down a minute? No, no, thank you. It was just a little business matter. Thank you indeed. He retreated from the doorway, and Mr Henshey, seizing one of the candlesticks, 
went to the door to light him downstairs. Oh, don't trouble, I beg. Ah, but the stairs are so dark. No, no, I can see. Thank you indeed. Are you right now? All right, thanks. Mr. Henshey returned with the candlestick and put it on the table. He sat down again at the fire. There was silence for a few moments. Uh, uh, tell me, John, said Mr. O'Connor, lighting his cigarette with another pasteboard card. Mm. What is he, exactly? Ask me an easier one. Fanning and himself seem to me very thick. They're often in caverns together. Is he a priest at all? Mm, yes, I believe so. I think he's what you call a black sheep. We haven't many of them, thank God, but we have a few. He's an unfortunate man of some kind. And how does he knock it out? That's another mystery. Is he attached to any chapel or church or institution or... No, I think he's travelling on his own account. God forgive me, I thought he was the dozen of stout. Is there any chance of a drink itself? I'm dry too, said the old man. I asked that little shoe boy three times would he send up a dozen of stout. I asked him again now... But he was leaning on the counter in his short sleeves, having a deep goster with Alderman Cowley. Why didn't you remind him? Well, I couldn't go over while he was talking to Alderman Cowley. I just waited till I caught his eye and said, About that little matter I was speaking to you about? That'll be all right, Mr. H, he said. Yeah, I sure the little hop of me thumb has forgotten all about it. There's some deal on in that quarter, said Mr. O'Connor thoughtfully. I saw the three of them hard at it yesterday at Suffolk Street Corner. I think I know the little game they're at. You must owe the city fathers money nowadays if you want to be made Lord Mayor. Then they'll make you Lord Mayor. By God, I'm thinking seriously of becoming a city father myself. What do you think? Would I do for the job? Mr O'Connor laughed. <laughs> so far as owing money goes. Driving out of the mansion house in all me vermin, with Jack here standing up behind me in a powdered wig, eh? And make me your private secretary, John. Yes, and I'll make Father Kyong me private chaplain. We'll have a family party. Fate, Mr. Henchy, said the old man. You'd keep up better style than some of them. I was talking one day to El Keegan, the porter. And how do you like your new master, Pat, says I to him. You haven't much entertaining now, says I. Entertaining, says he. He'd live on the smell of an oil rag. And do you know what he told me? Now, I declare to God, I didn't believe him. What? What? Said Mr. Henshey and Mr. O'Connor. He told me. What do you think of a Lord Mayor of Dublin sending out for a pound of chops for his dinner? How was that for high living, says he. Wish you, wish you, says I. A pound of chops, says he, coming into the mansion house. Wish you, says I. What kind of people is going us on now? At this point, there was a knock at the door, and a boy put in his head. What is it? Said the old man. From the Black Eagle. Said the boy, walking in sideways, and depositing a basket on the floor with a noise of shaken bottles. The old man helped the boy to transfer the bottles from the basket to the table, and counted the full tally. After the transfer, the boy put his basket on his arm and asked, Any bottles? What bottles? Won't you let us drink them first? I was told to ask for bottles. Come back tomorrow. Here, boy. Will you run over to O'Farrell's and ask him to lend us a corkscrew? For Mr. Henchy, say. Tell him we won't keep it a minute. 
Leave the basket there. The boy went out, and Mr Henshey began to rub his hands cheerfully, saying, Oh, well, he's not so bad after all. He's as good as his word, anyhow. There's no tumblers. Oh, don't let that trouble you, Jack. Many's the good man before now drank out of the bottle. Anyway, it's better than nothing, said Mr O'Connor. He's not a bad sort. Only Fanning has such a loan of him. He means well, you know, in his own tin pot way. The boy came back with the corkscrew. The old man opened three bottles and was handing back the corkscrew when Mr Henshey said to the boy, Would you like a drink, boy? If you please, so, said the boy. The old man opened another bottle grudgingly and handed it to the boy. What age are you? he asked. Seventeen, said the boy. As the old man said nothing further, the boy took the bottle, said, Here's my best respects, sir, to Mr Henshey, drank the contents, put the bottle back on the table and wiped his mouth with his sleeve. Then he took up the corkscrew and went out of the door sideways, muttering some form of salutation. That's the way it begins, said the old man. The thin edge of the wedge, said Mr. Henshey. The old man distributed the three bottles which he had opened, and the men drank from them simultaneously. After having drunk, each placed his bottle on the mantelpiece within hand's reach, and drew in a long breath of satisfaction. Well, I did a good day's work today, said Mr Henshey after a pause. That's all, John? Yes. I got him one or two sure things in Dawson Street, Crofton and myself. Between ourselves, you know, Crofton, he's a decent chap, of course, but he's not worth a damn as a canvasser. He hasn't a word to throw to a dog. He stands and looks at the people while I do the talking. Here, two men entered the room. One of them was a very fat man whose blue serge clothes seemed to be in danger of falling from his sloping figure. He had a big face which resembled a young ox's face in expression, staring blue eyes and a grizzled moustache. The other man, who was much younger and frailer, had a thin, clean-shaven face. He wore a very high double collar and a wide-brimmed bowler hat. Hello, Crofton, said Mr Henshey to the fat man. Talk of the devil. Where did the booze come from? Asked the young man. Did the cow calve? Ah, of course, lion spots the drink first thing, said Mr O'Connor, laughing. Is that the way you chaps canvas, said Mr Lyons. And Crofton and I out in the cold and rain looking for votes. Why, blast your soul, said Mr Henshey. I'd get more votes in five minutes than you two would get in a week. Open two bottles of stout, Jack, said Mr O'Connor. How can I? said the old man. And there's no corkscrew. Wait now, wait now, said Mr Henshey, getting up quickly. Did you ever see this little trick? He took two bottles from the table and, carrying them to the fire, put them on the hob. Then he sat down again by the fire and took another drink from his bottle. Mr Lyons sat on the edge of the table, pushed his hat towards the nape of his neck and began to swing his legs. Which is my bottle? he asked. This lad, said Mr Henshey. Mr Crofton sat down on a box and looked fixedly at the other bottle on the hob. He was silent for two reasons. The first reason, sufficient in itself, was that he had nothing to say. The second reason was that he considered his companions beneath him. He had been a canvasser for Wilkins, the Conservative, 
but when the Conservatives had withdrawn their man and, choosing the lesser of two evils, given their support to the Nationalist candidate, he had been engaged to work for Mr Tierney. In a few minutes, an apologetic pock was heard as the cork flew out of Mr Lyons' bottle. Mr Lyons jumped off the table, went to the fire, took his bottle and carried it back to the table. I was just telling them, Crofton, said Mr Henshey, that we got a good few votes today. Who did you get? asked Mr Lyons. Well, I got Parks for one, and I got Atkinson for two. And I got Ward of Dawson Street. Fine old chap he is, too. Regular old tough old conservative. But isn't your candidate a nationalist, said he. He's a respectable man, said I. He's in favour of whatever will benefit this country. He's a big ratepayer, I said. He has extensive house property in the city and three places of business. And isn't it to his own advantage to keep down the rates? He's a prominent and respected citizen, said I, and a poor law guardian. And he doesn't belong to any party, good, bad or indifferent. That's the way to talk to him. And what about the address to the king? Said Mr Lyons, after drinking and smacking his lips. Listen to me. What we want in this country, as I said to Old Ward, is capital. The king's coming here will mean an influx of money into this country. The citizens of Dublin will benefit by it. Look at all the factories down by the quays there, idle. Look at all the money there is in the country if we only work the old industries, the mills, the shipbuilding yards and factories. It's capital we want. But look here, John, said Mr O'Connor. Why should we welcome the King of England? Didn't Parnell himself... Parnell is dead. Now here's the way I look at it. Here's this chap come to the throne after his old mother keeping him out of it till the man was grey. He's a man of the world and he means well by us. He's a jolly fine decent fellow if you ask me and no damn nonsense about him. He just says to himself, the old one never went to see these wild Irish. By Christ I'll go myself and see what they're like. And are we going to insult the man when he comes over here on a friendly visit, eh? Isn't that right, Crofton? Mr. Crofton nodded his head. But after all, no, said Mr. Lyons argumentatively. King Edward's life, you know, is not the very... Let bygones be bygones. I admire the man personally. He's just an ordinary knockabout like you and me. He's fond of his glass of grog and he's a bit of a rake, perhaps. And he's a good sportsman. Damn it, can't we Irish play fair? That's all very fine. But... Look at the case of Parnell now. In the name of God, where's the analogy between the two cases? What I mean is we have our ideals. Why now would we welcome a man like that? Do you think now, after what he did, Parnell was a fit man to lead us? And why then would we do it for Edward VII? This is Parnell's anniversary, said Mr O'Connor. And don't let us store up any bad blood. We all respect him now that he's dead and gone. Even the Conservatives, he added turning to Mr. Crofton. Puck! The tardy cork flew out of Mr. Crofton's bottle. Mr. Crofton got up from his box and went to the fire. As he returned with his capture, he said in a deep voice, Our side of the house respects him because he was a gentleman. Right you are, Crofton, said Mr. Henchy fiercely. He was the only man that could keep that bag of cats in order. Down ye dogs, lie down ye cores. That's the way he treated them. Come in, Joe, come in, he called out, catching sight of Mr Hines in the doorway. Mr Hines came in slowly. Open another bottle of stout, Jack, said Mr Henshey. Oh, I forgot there's no corkscrew. 
Here, show me one here, and I'll put it at the fire. The old man handed him another bottle, and he placed it on the hob. Sit down, Joe, said Mr. O'Connor. We're just talking about the chief. Aye, aye, said Mr. Henchy. Mr. Hines sat on the side of the table near Mr. Lyons, but said nothing. There's one of them, anyhow, said Mr. Henchy. That didn't renege him. By God, I'll say for you, Joe. Oh, by God, you stuck to him like a man. Oh, Joe, said Mr. O'Connor suddenly. Give us that thing you wrote. Do you remember? Have you got it on you? Oh, aye, said Mr. Henchy. Give us that. Did you ever hear that, Crofton? Listen to this now, splendid thing. Go on, said Mr. O'Connor. Fire away, Joe. Mr. Hines did not seem to remember at once the piece to which they were alluding, but after reflecting a while, he said, Oh, that thing, is it? Sure, that's old now. Out with it, man. Shh, shh, said Mr. Henchy. Now, Joe. Mr. Hines hesitated a little longer. Then, amid the silence, he took off his hat, laid it on the table and stood up. He seemed to be rehearsing the piece in his mind. After a rather long pause, he announced, The death of Parnell, 6th of October, 1891. <coughs> he cleared his throat once or twice, and then began to recite. He is dead. Our uncrowned king is dead. O Ern mourn with grief and woe. For he lies dead, whom the fell gang of modern hypocrites laid low. He lies slain by the coward hounds. He raised to glory from the mire. And Aaron's hopes and Aaron's dreams perish upon her monarch's pyre. In palace, cabin or in cot, the Irish heart, where'er it be, is bowed with woe. For he is gone who would have wrought her destiny. He would have had his errand fame, the green flag gloriously unfurled, her statesmen, bards and warriors raised before the nations of the world. He dreamed, alas, it was but a dream, of liberty. But as he strove to clutch that idol, treachery sundered him from the thing he loved. Shame on the coward caitiff hands that smote their lord, or with a kiss betrayed him to the rabble rout of fawning priests, no friends of his. May everlasting shame consume the memory of those who tried to be foul and smear the exalted name of one who spurned them in his pride. He fell as fall the mighty ones, nobly undaunted to the last, and death has now united him with Aaron's heroes of the past. No sound of strife disturb his sleep. Calmly he rests. No human pain or high ambition spurs him now, the peaks of glory to attain. They had their way. They laid him low. But Aaron list. His spirit may rise like the phoenix from the flames when breaks the dawning of the day, the day that brings us freedom's reign. And on that day may Erin well pledge in the cup she lifts to joy one grief, the memory of Parnell. Mr. Hines sat down again on the table. When he had finished his recitation, there was a silence and then a burst of clapping. Even Mr. Lyons clapped. 
the applause continued for a little time. When it had ceased, all the auditors drank from their bottles in silence. Pock! The cork flew out of Mr Hines' bottle, but Mr Hines remained sitting, flushed and bareheaded on the table. He did not seem to have heard the invitation. Good man, Joe, said Mr O'Connor, taking out his cigarette papers and pouch, the better to hide his emotion. What do you think of that, Crofton? cried Mr Henshey. Isn't that fine? Fun? Mr Crofton said that it was a very fine piece of writing. That was Ivy Day in the Committee Room by James Joyce. Patrick Dawson was Mr O'Connor and the old man was Seamus Ford. Jim Reed played Mr Hines and Des Nealon was Mr Henshey. The young man was Garvin McGrath and the boy was played by Michael Grinnell. Other parts were played by members of the Radio Aaron Players. Ivy Day in the Committee Room by James Joyce was narrated by Connor Farrington and the producer was William Stiles. If you'd like to hear these and previous stories from Dubliners or you just can't wait to binge on the box set, you can listen to and download all 15 stories and more besides on our website, rte.ie slash Ulysses or on the Drama on One website. The series producer of Drama on One is Kevin Reynolds. Drama on One. A lie told often enough becomes the truth. Drama on One, Sundays at 8pm. The pessimist sees the difficulty in every opportunity. An optimist sees the opportunity in every difficulty. rte.ie forward slash drama on one. Compassion is the basis of morality. Drama on One. The tongue like a sharp knife kills without drawing blood. Drama on One. I'm Stanley Townsend. I'm Angeline Ball. I'm Stephen Ray. Hi, I'm Lawrence Kinlan. Hi, I'm Saoirse Ronan. I'm Nick Dunning. Hi, I'm Brendan Gleeson and you can hear me at rte.ie forward slash drama on one. rte.ie forward slash drama on one. Drama on one.